going to invite you to turn in the scriptures to the Song of Songs. This is our fourth and final study in Solomon's Song of Songs. It's the first verse. King Solomon reigned in Jerusalem almost a thousand years before Jesus. He was the son of King David. And if you remember, David had received a world history-shaping promise from God. Now, that's around Solomon's era. But you might remember that it was actually one of David's ancestors about a thousand years earlier, Abraham, to whom God had made another world history-shaping promise. A thousand years before David and Solomon... God had said to Abraham, I am going to restore blessing on this cursed planet. And in fact, this blessing is going to extend to all nations on earth. That was a thousand years before David and Solomon. In David's generation, this is Solomon's dad, God had promised David that one of his descendants would rule as king on earth forever. That was the generation before Solomon. Now, millennia later, we know, 3,000 years later, we know that these massive promises were fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is God's long-awaited king who is going to rule forever on earth and he will restore blessing in place of the curse and all nations will experience that blessing these promises still drive our congregation to go to all the nations with the message of salvation through Jesus. Now, those promises that God had made to Abraham and to David that Solomon knew, knew well, they were fulfilled in the most unusual way, in a way that Solomon never expected. Throughout Jesus' life, he would prove that he's the king who could perfectly obey God. He would prove that he has the power of the creator. And he would prove that he could defeat every enemy. So far, so good. Solomon expected all of that. But here was what was unusual. This king on earth, rather than immediately reigning chose to die on a cross. This king chose to bear punishment that sinners deserve. And then he rose again from the dead. And he proved by his resurrection that his death and the punishment that he took on himself was enough. It was sufficient for all who would trust him. Earth's long-awaited king, this long-awaited descendant of Abraham and David, was a king like no other. He was a king who came to die. He was a king who chose to wear a crown of thorns before wearing a crown of gold. He redeemed sinners and proved his power to redeem all of creation. So when we pick up and read Solomon's Song of Songs, we read the greatest poem of one of the most significant kings who lived smack dab in the middle of that history. 
a millennium after Abraham, a generation after David, and about a millennium before Jesus. He's smack dab in the middle of this royal history that God is writing. Interestingly, there's another song of Solomon in the Bible. It's much less known. Psalm 72. I preached on it a few years ago before election season of 2016 when America was in so much turmoil. Psalm 72 is a song in which Solomon praises the coming king who's going to restore blessing to earth. And the last couple verses of Psalm 72 give clear indication that Solomon understood he lived smack dab in the middle of this history. The last few verses indicate that he understands that this coming king is going to be the fulfillment of all God's promises to Abraham and all of God's promises to David. It's going to be in a single individual king of Israel who's going to rule forever on this planet in perfect righteousness and peace. That was a great song of Solomon. But interestingly, it wasn't the song of songs. It wasn't his greatest song. Solomon's greatest song, interestingly, is not about history. The history that he's living in the middle of. It's not a history. His song is a romance. Now, I think it's going to be referring to the history. But it's primarily a romance. His song of songs is about the beauty of intimate love between a husband and wife. The intimate love between a man and a woman who've committed themselves to each other exclusively for life. And it's really remarkable that Solomon wrote this song. It's one of the greatest ironies in history that Solomon wrote this song. Because King Solomon, during his 40-year reign, lived as one of the most notorious abusers of God's good design of marriage. He had hundreds of wives in his harem, most of whom were used as tools for political maneuvering. And yet, as I've pointed out in previous weeks, it seems that this poem, this greatest poem that he compiled about marital love was written in his elderly years after he had repented of his rebellion. That repentance is indicated in other writings, especially in Ecclesiastes, which was written near the end of his life. He's writing as an old, decrepit man to a younger generation saying, fear the Lord, serve the Lord, and use his good gift of marriage rightly. It's evidence in Ecclesiastes. I think there's also a hint of it in Proverbs 1-9. to Proverbs 1-9 through was written clearly in the later half of his life. We don't know how late in his life, but we do know that by this point he had many sons and many of them were getting married and raising children and he was teaching them about marriage and about parenting in Proverbs. Before studying this wisdom in the Song of Songs, you might remember that in the spring we were studying Proverbs 1-9. through And Greg powerfully preached on Proverbs chapter 5. It was there that Solomon wrote, Drink flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water flowing through the city streets? 
No. Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. He ends that saying, be intoxicated always in her love. Notice that there in Proverbs 5, the same writer, Solomon, commands monogamy. He compares the sexual joys within marriage to a private garden fountain. And he counsels intoxication in this exclusive romance. Keep that in mind as we read today's text. Our text today is the very center of the Song of Songs. I'd call this message the garden. I've pointed out each week of our study that the song reads like a reader's theater in which there are three main speakers. There's a husband, and then a wife will step up to the microphone, and then a chorus, probably made up of the wife's brothers who were responsible for protecting her. The chorus then will sometimes speak. So you'll get the husband, and then the wife, and then the chorus, and then the husband, and then the wife, and then the wife, and then the husband, and then the chorus. It's like a reader's theater. In today's text, all three, husband, wife, and chorus, speak. I've also pointed out, as we've approached the song, that this eight-chapter song is one massive, beautiful chiasm it's like a, like a mirror, or you might think of it like a picture that the bottom half of it is a reflection in a lake. You see everything on land, the house and the mountains and the sky, reflected in reverse order in the massive lake at the bottom half of the picture. The horizon line of the Song of Songs is the central poem that we read today. Today we arrive at the center. We arrive at the mirror that's reflecting everything that's come before it and everything that comes after it. It's just eight verses. It's the song starting in chapter 4, verse 10. First, the husband speaks, and he expresses how delighted he is in his wife. He says, verse 10, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine. Then he describes the sweetness of kissing her. In verse 12, he reflects, A garden locked is my sister, my bride. A spring locked, a fountain sealed. A couple explanations real quick. He refers to her twice as sister, And of course, this does not refer to literal sister. It's not referring to a literal relative at all. In their culture, it was a term of endearment, just like in our culture, we might say baby. Are we using that term literally? Are we comparing, you know, to a baby? No, no, no. We use the term baby as a term of endearment. We don't mean it literally. In their culture, this term expressed the closeness and the permanence of the relationship. But notice especially that in verse 12, he compares his wife to a private garden and a fountain from which she allows him and only him to drink. In verses 13 and 14, he goes on to describe very evocatively the delights that he finds in her garden. And then in verse 15, he returns to the imagery. 
My wife is a garden fountain, a well of living water and flowing streams like the streams from Lebanon. And then the wife speaks, inflaming her husband's desires. She says, Awake, O north wind. Come, O south wind. Blow upon my garden and let its fragrant spices flow. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat its choicest fruits. And then the husband expresses his delight. I came to my garden, my sister, my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. And then the chorus speaks climactically. Eat, friends. Drink. And be drunk with love. Be intoxicated with love. That's the center of the greatest of all songs. The king comes into his garden, and he and his bride there in the garden delight in one another. Climactically, the chorus, voicing the full approval of God, shouts, Yes, lovers! Yes! Be intoxicated with this! Here's how I'd put the main point. The main point of this song is that God fully approves. He fully approves of the romantic intimacy that's enjoyed within marriage. In fact, he designed such delights to faintly echo the only truly satisfying human hope. God fully approves of romantic intimacy that's enjoyed within marriage. Fully approves of it. Yes, lovers, be intoxicated in this love. He fully approves of it. In fact, he designed it. And he designed it to picture something ultimate. I want to unpack this. And I first today want to focus on what the romantic delights of marriage are faintly echoing. Here's how I'd reflect on it. The delights of marital intimacy faintly echo the satisfaction of the new creation. Solomon, in this Song of Songs, is meditating on marriage, and he knows where marriage began. Robert preached this just a few weeks ago in Genesis 2. God explains there that it's because of the way that he made Adam and made Eve out of Adam and brought Eve to Adam It's because of the way he created them that that's why a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two of them shall become one flesh. Marriage is the way it is because of God's design. Solomon knows this. It's really interesting that at the center of the Song of Songs is a beautiful garden, a locked garden, It's a garden with all kinds of fruits and spices, a garden with a fountain of fresh water at the center. One scholar, Tom Gledel, explains, the song seems to look back on and recapture these scenes of Eden, of primal innocence. It reaffirms the doctrine of the goodness of God's creation. Now, I think Solomon, with an entire lifetime of reflecting theologically on life and marriage. Remember, he was a man, 
though he didn't always live it, he was a man who was given wisdom by God. I think he knows that marriage is picturing something in the Garden of Eden. It's looking back. But I think he also picks up on the fact that marriage is pointing forward to the way that the world is going to be restored. I think he knows that the way the world is going to be restored is going to be through Israel's king who commits himself in covenant love to his bride. And he's going to overcome every obstacle in making that bride his own. And he's eventually going to live forever in a restored perfect garden with his bride. I think he knows that. I think Psalm 72 hints at it. I think Psalm 45 hints at it. I think what he's doing with the garden at the center of this song indicates that he knows what he's doing. Israel's king is overcoming every obstacle because of his covenant love for his bride, and he's bringing his bride back to the garden where he's going to live forever with her. I think the song is a profound theological statement on God's design for marriage, hinting at eternity, hinting at the delight that's going to be ours when we're finally with our king, the one who died for us and rose again for us. This first point, I just want to apply it like this. We must realize what the song is hinting at. Married couples and singles, we must realize that marriage is not the ultimate experience in life. Marriage points to the ultimate experience in life. And do you see how that both raises up marriage so that we honor it rightly, but it pulls down marriage so that we don't idolize it? Marriage is not the ultimate experience in life. Life's ultimate experience is knowing Jesus. God's chosen king, Israel's king, who was crucified for your sins to make you his own. And then he rose again and is coming again and is going to reign forever on a perfectly remade earth. That's what human life was designed for. And marriage pictures it. To be loved by Jesus forever is life. To be safe forever in Jesus' love is true satisfaction. It's the well springing up in your heart that never runs out but fully quenches your thirst. To see Jesus and to be forever with him will be the fullest experience of human joy. Every experience of joy this side of seeing Jesus is just pushing us forward to that ultimate experience. If you have not repented of being your own authority and called out on Jesus who died in your place to save you and submitted your life to the Lord Jesus, to King Jesus, saying, I give you my life, I'm going to follow you, I commit myself to you, I urge you to do so now and experience the ultimate relationship to which the best marriages faintly point. Marriage is not ultimate. 
a relationship with Jesus is. Marriage is pointing to that. Second point. The delights of marital intimacy are encouraged, even commanded, within marriage. Chapter 5, verse 1. The command to the couple is this. Be drunk with love. When we have what we call baths, the complement of showers, and that is when the men in the church have a pizza party and we give gifts to the soon-to-be husbands in our congregation and I have the opportunity to share a word of encouragement with some advice, I often focus on this word intoxication. And I encourage the young man who's about to be married that there are two primary intoxications that God commands. The first, I say, is Ephesians 5. God says there, don't be drunk with wine. That leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Live under the control of the Spirit. Every Christian is designed to live under the minute-by-minute control of Christ's Spirit. And interestingly, the term intoxication is commanded of men here in the song chapter 5 and in Proverbs chapter 5. This is the way that Christian men and Christian married couples are supposed to live. Every married man is to live in a way that's delighted in the affections of his wife and in fact is controlled by affections for his wife. What a wonderful command. Why would something like that even need to be commanded? Well, have you ever been married for a while? Maintaining this intoxication with delight in your spouse doesn't come as naturally as it did early on. Especially as life fills up with children and stresses at work and physical changes. Obeying this command to be intoxicated with your spouse's delight requires that we establish disciplined living in which we set aside time for communication as a couple. It requires the mental disciplines of saying no to competing affections. It demands the disciplines of intimacy so that we make time for what's important rather than saying we just haven't found time. We need to be commanded to this intoxication. Newly married couples find it hard to believe that intoxication with intimacy could ever have to be commanded. We find it hard to believe that Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 would ever have to put limits on how long a couple could abstain from intimacy. And yet, Paul does. He says, you abstain from intimacy only if it's mutually agreed on for a limited time for the purpose of prayer. That's the limits. Married couples, if you're physically able, are you pursuing this intoxication? Married couples, I ask more negatively, 
Are you seeking to teach your spouse abstinence? When God commanded intoxication? Do you need to repent this morning? Going a little farther, and more positively, married couples, if overcoming every obstacle to intimacy and pursuing intimacy with your spouse because of your covenant-keeping love, if that's intended to be a little parable of how history is going to end with a redeemed people in a redeemed creation, how good are you at reflecting that greatest story in your marriage? Saying, because of my commitment to love this person, we're going to work through every obstacle and we're going to keep moving toward reconciled intimacy. Do you realize that you are given like a highlighter in your marriage to say, get a little glimpse in our marriage of what God's faithful love is like? Look at how we keep working through problems and tensions and keep restoring our intimacy and get a little glimpse of what God's love for you is like. The delights of marital intimacy are encouraged, even commanded within marriage. The third and final point is this. The delights of marital intimacy should be reserved for marriage. This has been the undercurrent, the message undercurrent of the whole song. The song is primarily written to give singles wisdom. And the wisdom that this book consistently emphasizes is that the fire of romantic intimacy is to be reserved for the fireplace of lifelong exclusive vows. Singles, are you willing to submit your life to God's wisdom? Are you willing to say, by God's Spirit, I'm going to swim against the strong current of my culture, my rebellious culture, and I am going to reserve sex for marriage? The book is demanding that you live with this wisdom. Maybe going down this rabbit trail just a little, little farther. Singles, are you willing to let God's word shape how you pursue dating? Are you willing to call friends with benefits what it actually is? It's damaging any potential of friendship that might be there in the first place. It is immoral. Are you willing to think through dating and say, I'm going to reserve physical romance for my wedding day and afterward? Singles, do you see that you build trust through self-control? And on the contrary, if you live like covenant vows don't matter to intimacy, then you're going to destroy trust. Think about it. 
if you live like covenant vows don't matter for intimacy, covenant vows don't matter for intimacy. You will destroy trust if you live outside of God's boundaries. And singles, most of all, I say, do you realize that reserving your affections and your body for marriage are actually a way that you get to glorify God? You show that he is worth living for and reserving your affections for. I see Tori, and I see Samuel, and I'm going to speak to you guys directly. Samuel, the Lord has called you to singleness right now. And he may call you to marriage in the future. Do you realize that living with the restraints of singleness of, as God designed it, as well as living with the responsibilities of marriage as God designed it, they're both, singleness and marriage, they're given to you to glorify God. To say, I am going to reserve my affections according to God's design. Tori, I say the same thing to you. The Lord has called you to singleness right now, and he may call you to marriage in the future. Do you realize that the restraints of singleness, along with the responsibilities of marriage, are given to you to glorify Jesus? On this special day in which you've been baptized, which you've declared that your lives are submitted to Jesus, I just want to call on you in a way that I hope you don't forget, that in your singleness and in your marriage, if God allows, I want you to remember the, the point of why God might give you singleness in marriage, of why God might give you singleness in marriage. It's captured very powerfully by Lecrae in his song, Don't Waste Your Life. Your money, your singleness, your marriage, your talents, your time, they're on loan to you to show the world that Christ is divine. If he's truly raised to life, this news should change your life. And by his grace, you can put your faith in the place that rules your days and nights. Live under the control of Jesus in this most practical way of letting your singleness or your marriage, depending on the will of God, glorify the risen king. You are called to be stewards of your status. And I pray that each of you will commit to saying day by day, night by night, I am going to keep trusting the risen king to rule over every aspect of my life. I end concluding with a reflection on marriage being so beautiful and so broken. Marriage is so beautiful. It is such a good gift from God. This summer I've been able to enjoy a few weddings each one has been thrilling. My family just returned last night from my nephew's wedding down near Philadelphia. As his bride came down the aisle, he was literally reminding himself to breathe so he wouldn't pass out. Beautiful. And that was just before the, the two of them vowed to become one. They said, through the best of times and the worst of times, we will love one another until death parts us. 
How beautiful. Marriage as God designed it is so beautiful. And yet, in our culture, marriage and sexuality have never been viewed more cheaply. There's a frequent contributor to the Washington Post named Christine Emba. She recently published a book called Rethinking Sex. It's not written from a religious perspective. It's written from the perspective of a journalist. She's done numerous interviews. And the basic gist of her book is this. Today, in our American culture, we are reaping the harvest of the sexual revolution. Our culture, our society, is as free and promiscuous as ever. And yet, through her interviews, she says, we are as a culture as hopeless as ever. In her numerous interviews, she says, basically, I discovered casual sex, that is sex without any long-term commitment, saps the spirit and makes us feel less than human, leaving us detached, disillusioned. In fact, her first chapter is, we're liberated and we're miserable. She summarizes her interviews like this. For the people I interviewed, hopes are high, but outcomes trend low. And for something meant to bring pleasure, sex is causing a lot of pain. Her goal in the entire book is to compel her readers to question what is wise. She says you need to ask a whole lot more than simply what our culture does. Are we consenting adults? And as she draws toward conclusion, she recommends something that she admits is completely foreign to our culture. She recommends abstinence for singles as the best way forward. She says, this is an argument for restraint. In every other situation common to the human experience, eating, drinking, exercise, even email, we have realized that restraint produces healthier results. Why not here too? Having lots of sex hasn't led to better sex or better relationships. In many cases, it has inspired numbness, callousness, hurting others and being hurt. And rather than being titillating, sexual overload is boring. Boundaries can actually make things more exciting and more beautiful. That's a modern, secular voice. Do you hear? It's imperfect. I'm not necessarily recommending the book. Do you hear that it's echoing the wisdom that God put in the Bible 3,000 years ago? Tri-County, I pray that we allow God's Word and God's Spirit to control our lives so that we stand out from our culture's dehumanizing attitudes and behaviors regarding marriage and sexuality. I do pray that we preach the truth, the truth of God's design, and the truth of God's grace that there is forgiveness for all sin in Christ, including forgiveness for all sexual sin, if you will repent. 
We must be preachers of truth and grace. And I pray that we also live out this truth that we've seen in the song. That there is superior joy when we trust and obey God's design for sexuality. I pray that God will not only allow us to experience something of the joy of obedience, but that God will also use us through our words and our lives that back up our words. I pray that God will use us to draw others into a more ultimate experience, and that is the joy of the kingdom. That is the ultimate joy to which the temporary joys of marriage faintly point. Oh God, help us to love the truth. God, I pray that we would be careful about these matters of marriage and sexuality, that we would neither be on the one hand explicit and crude, nor on the other hand prudish or or thinking that somehow reservation in talking less than your word does about this is more holy. Oh God, I pray that we would hear your voice through the chorus saying, yes, be intoxicated. And God, I pray that every individual in here who's married would respond to that with obedience and every single would obey and reserve that fire for the fireplace of covenant marriage. God, I pray that you would draw unbelievers through this critique of the culture, through this explanation of the way you created marriage. I pray that you would bring those who are not followers of Jesus to follow him because of the, the rightness, the beauty of your way. And God, I pray that every life in here would be touched, shaped by what we've encountered in your word today. Oh God, I pray that Jesus would be exalted, that marriages would be strengthened, that singles would be given stronger godly resolve, that non-believers would be drawn to follow Jesus. And I pray that we would be shaped by your word for Jesus' glory and our good, I pray. Amen. Amen.